Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your most holy word, that you would give us an increased vision of the glory of your son as we celebrate his birth on this day. Amen. You know, sometimes we don't perceive how significant or a person or an event will become. It's easy to underestimate. We don't know all the variables. And sometimes the most profound influences come from the most unexpected places. Take the year 1809 as an example. Napoleon was sweeping throughout Austria. Blood was flowing freely. Nobody back then took much note about babies being born. But the world was overlooking some terribly significant births. For example, William Gladstone was born that year. He was destined to become one of England's finest statesmen. Alfred Tennyson was born to an obscure minister and his wife, and the child would one day greatly affect the literary world in a marked way. On the American continent, Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and not far away in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe began his eventful, albeit tragic, life. And it was also in that same year of 1809 that a physician named Darwin and his wife named their child Charles Robert. And that same year produced the cries of a newborn infant in a rugged log cabin in Hardin County, Kentucky. That baby's name was Abraham Lincoln. If there had been a news broadcast at that time, I'm almost certain that it would have sounded something like this. The destiny of the world is being shaped on the Austrian battlefield today. But the history of the West was actually being shaped in the cradles of England and of the United States of America. Similarly, if you had heard a headline around the time of Jesus' coming, taxation would have been the big news of the day. Everyone was summoned to the place of their origin to be accounted for, all for the sake of the taxes. But a young Jewish woman cradled the biggest news of all, the birth of a savior. Things aren't always as they seem. Sometimes powerful things come in small packages. And when you think about the world unsuspecting of what would come from Bethlehem, this morning we look to Psalm 110 to see just how significant this birth of Jesus would actually be. Here in Psalm 110, we see three roles of the coming Savior, nine promises that are made to him, and they create in us an overwhelming sense of awe for the Christmas King, one that comes from seemingly humble beginnings, but since long before his birth had been foretold 
of his greatness. And so follow with me as we read Psalm 110. If you have a pew Bible, you can grab it in front of you. It's on page 509. Be on the screen behind me as well. This is a Psalm of David, and it begins, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the entire New Testament. The gospel writer Luke applies the words of this psalm to Jesus in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul applies the words of this psalm to Jesus throughout his epistles. The author of Hebrews applies this psalm to Jesus many times over. And Jesus himself applies the words of this very psalm, these promises, and these roles to himself at multiple points in his earthly ministry. And it's interesting as you see that this psalm encapsulates some of the most profound areas of Jesus's varying roles as our Savior. Its application, how it's applied, how it's fulfilled, is seen in his birth, it's seen in his life, it's seen in his death and resurrection, and it's seen in his ascension. It's a royal psalm of David. It points to the Savior of the world. And in this way, Psalm 110 is a psalm for Christmas. And so we see three rules of Jesus made clear for us. He's the king. He is the high priest. And he is the great warrior. Look at it with me. In verses 1 through 3, we see this image of Jesus immediately being portrayed as a king. For God, the divine sovereign of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who has authority over all animate and inanimate objects in existence, to command the Son to sit at his right hand is to place him in the position of the king. And it compels you, as you read it, to close your eyes and to try to imagine the throne room of God. As it reads, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty 
scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. To sit at the right hand of God is the position of the highest honor, the highest authority, and the highest power. No one had honor, authority, or power to sit at the right hand of God himself. No one except Jesus. The throne, the footstool, the scepter, these are the picture of a king. And throughout the New Testament, these verses, even verses just one, two, and three, describe how King Jesus is going to be unlike anyone else the world has ever seen. He is not only greater than David, as it says in Acts chapter 2, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he's also greater than the angels. Hebrews 1.13 says, To what angel has he ever said, sit at my right hand? God exalted him when men rejected him. In Acts 5, it says, Jesus whom you killed, God exalted at his right hand. It is as a savior and an intercessor that Jesus reigns from the right hand. In Romans 8, 34, it says, Christ who is at the right hand of God, intercedes for us. And in the token of his task being finished, Jesus is seated in that position. Hebrews 10 says that every priest stands daily, offering repeatedly, but Christ sat down at the right hand of God. And there we see that he does so until his enemies are his footstool, meaning that he awaits the last surrender to wait until his enemies should be made a stool for his feet, Hebrews 10, 13 says. And this leads one scholar to write that so this single verse This one verse in Psalm 110 displays the divine person of Christ, his power and his prospect before him. And together with verse four, it underlines most of the entire New Testament's teaching on the glory of this priest king. Not only does Jesus sit and act at the Father's right hand, he acts as the Father's right hand. It says, as his mighty scepter is sent forth to rule. And I love the expression of verse three. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. What does that mean? In the picture of great majesty and glory and power, you see that people come to see this king and they give themselves, such as they are, to him in sacrifice to his service. The wise men did that. 
It was this way from the very beginning. The wise men offered themselves and their gifts willingly as these magi came from a far off land to see the Prince of Peace and pay homage to him. The shepherds left their flocks at night, offered themselves and their worship willingly, not because they were forced, in response to the declaration of angels and the hosts of heaven. And for centuries, men and women, boys and girls, when they meet King Jesus, offer themselves to him willingly. When his irresistible grace draws them in. When he is so glorious they can't help but gaze. So loving that they can't help but feel his warmth. So powerful they can't help but experience his safety. And so welcoming that they can't help but desire to be in his very presence. And friends, we too give ourselves freely to the king. Jesus is the king. He's seated at the right hand of God himself. And the second rule that we see in verse four shows us that he's not just the king, but he's also the priest. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, when the name Melchizedek is mentioned, it's enshrouded in mystery. The name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And early in Genesis, Melchizedek is mentioned as the king of Salem. And the word Salem means peace. It's most likely referring to an earlier name for Jerusalem. And so the king of righteousness is in the city of peace. And he was also, it says in Genesis 14, a priest of the most high God. And he blessed Abraham and Abraham gave to him, he tithed to him 10% of everything that he had. He gave it to this priest king and Melchizedek blessed Abraham saying, blessed be Abram by the most high God, professor of heaven and earth and be blessed Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so what is a priest? What is a high priest? Well, a priest is someone who mediates the relationship or the covenant between God and his people. The priest is the go-between. The priest is the one who has a bi-directional relationship. The priest speaks God's word to the people and the priest offers God's people's sacrifices and worship back to God. And so Jesus mediates between the Father and his people. And Hebrews tells us that he has prayed and is praying for us to his Father, offering our needs to God. But the unique thing about this high priest is where most priests would offer a sacrifice for sins on behalf of the people, this priest himself becomes the very sacrifice which he mediates. 
too late for the online deliveries at Christmas. One woman was doing her last minute Christmas shopping at a crowded mall. She was tired of fighting the crowds. She was tired of standing in line. She was tired of looking for the things that she wanted to buy that had been out of stock for days. And with her arms bulky, full of packages, when the elevator door opened, much to her dismay, it was full. The occupants of the elevator grudgingly tightened their ranks to allow a small space for her and for her load. And as the doors closed, she blurted out in frustration, whoever is responsible for this whole Christmas thing ought to be arrested, strung up, and shot. And the others nodded their heads and grunted in agreement. And then from somewhere in the back of the elevator came the single meek voice that said, don't worry, they already crucified him. I like that little anecdote because most of us have felt that type of frustration. We can relate. The chaos, the busyness, the shopping, fitting it all in. But more than that, I really like that little anecdote because it points to a profound theological truth that upon his birth, the death of Jesus was already in view. And his death and resurrection would solidify the role of Jesus as the priest, as the go-between, the mediator, the high priest between you and God forever. And because of this high priest, you can have your sins forgiven forever. Jesus is our king and Jesus is our high priest. And the psalm concludes with the third role that we see. It's that Jesus is the warrior. It's graphic in its imagery. The Lord is at your right hand, it says again. He will shatter the kings of the earth on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, because therefore he will lift up his head. The psalm begins with glory and majesty, and it ends with austere power. And it gives the picture of what it means for the enemies to be made his footstool, like it says in the beginning. And it's shocking and it's striking, right, that the meek, humble child of Bethlehem would be anything but weak. He would be a strong warrior. Powerful things can indeed come from humble beginnings. The unexpected birth in the stable results in a great and mighty warrior. 
You know, a king isn't a king if his enemies actually reign in the kingdom. A king isn't a king if he has no power to put down the rebellion. And as surprising as it might be to see the gracious, loving, humble savior of the world be depicted as a fierce warrior and judge, it reminds us that you do not want a weak king and that all things will be brought into harmony with this king. Jesus is the king. He's the priest and he's the warrior. But it begs the question, why all three? Why all three roles? Why not just one role or maybe two? Isn't it enough for him to be the king? Isn't it enough for him to be the priest, to be the go-between between us and God? Why does he have to be all three? Well, the answer is quite simple. Because Jesus is the king and the priest and the warrior, he is the perfect savior for God's people. Because of all three, because he's the king and the priest and the warrior, he is the perfect savior for God's people. And the thing that we celebrate at Christmas is the amazing invitation that points to his coming. And it's this. He's foretold of, as these things long before his coming. He takes the roles of these things even before he's brought to earth. And he assumes them in multiple ways along the way. But the invitation, the reason why he came is so that he can be your king and your priest and your warrior. That's why he came. That makes him the perfect savior, not just for the world generally, it makes him the perfect savior for you. He came to seek and save the lost, to bring people to God, to contend on your behalf in the midst of great and terrible evil, to pay the penalty for your sin. Because he is the king, the priest and the warrior, he is the perfect savior for God's people. And he is the perfect savior for you. You know, we sing about these aspects of Jesus' divinity and his kingship and his power all the time at Christmas. So many of the Christmas carols we've already sung today have pointed to it. And perhaps there's no Christmas hymn that captures the dynamic of this small, unexpected beginning that ends in such a great and powerful end. King, priest, warrior, a truly perfect savior. The contrast of meekness and power as captured in my favorite Christmas hymn, which is called, What Child Is This? Consider the words with me. As I read them, we'll sing them together in just a moment. But in the first verse of the psalm, we see a picture of the one who comes from a very meek beginning. It says, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? 
whom angels greet with anthems sweet, while shepherds watch are keeping. And then as you move into the chorus, you begin to sing of his kingship already. This, this is Christ the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. And in verse two, you sing of the righteous authority of this king, even in the midst of sinners. It says, why lies he in such mean estate where ox and lamb are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. And of his priesthood, in the beginning of this one being the sacrifice for us, we sing nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh. But it's just the meek, the lowly, the babe, the son of Mary. And finally, verse three concludes with the people willingly giving themselves as an offering to him, as we take on the role of shepherds and wise men giving gifts to the king. So you bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise a song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. Because Jesus is the king, the priest, and the warrior, he is the perfect savior of God's people. And he is the perfect savior for you. Please stand with us as we sing together.